welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters here on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, July 5th, we're studying Acts chapter 28, verses 1 to 16. After the shipwreck on the island of Malta, Paul eventually finishes his journey to Rome. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. Pastor Johnson serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Always great to be here. As we get started this morning, Pastor Johnson, let's talk a little context. We're beginning Acts chapter 28. What should we know as we prepare to look at this text today? Right. And well, hopefully, you know, if your listeners have been uh, following along, this is, of course, all going to be repetition, but um, at least let me do it for my sake. Uh, you know, this, of course, is we're nearing the end of Paul's long journey to uh, to Rome, and uh, and of course, Paul had said, you know, many many chapters back that you know he must you know he must go to Rome and, and bear witness there. And that's really, by the way, a, a key element here is that this this whole theme of of bearing witness to the gospel, uh, which he proclaims, and um, you know that's so. This is not just an adventure story. This isn't just a bunch of accidents that happened to Paul. Um, this is all part of an understood you know, divine narrative that, uh, that God's sending him to go and be, you know, a, um, you know, a witness just like he has to the Gentiles, even to the end of Rome. And so, um, of course you, you probably remember that, uh, Paul made it back to Jerusalem and, uh, he kind of got in some hot water with the, uh, with the religious leaders there. They basically laid in wait for him. He ended up before Felix and, and, uh, and Festus, and he made his, his, uh, appeal, as a Roman citizen to go and and be tried by uh, by Caesar, um, and so you know, and so we, what we've heard is that uh, you know he gets on he gets on a ship, but which of course is the the logical way to, to do transport, even if it's not always necessarily safe, as we as we see here. Um, and I think it's I think it's really interesting. Um, we can talk more about this later, but that um, for as much as this is indeed. God's will, things don't necessarily go smoothly for Paul. And, um, and so we shouldn't read into that, that just because, uh, you know, there's, there's obviously they have a, a difficulty going, you know, um, actually getting through the Mediterranean Sea. And then of course, then they get shipwrecked. And you guys heard about that last time, but this is all still part of, uh, of the divine plan. And so, um, so even when things don't go right, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's not what God uh, wants or intends. And so, but like I said, in the end, every step of the, step of this journey is really kind of a testimony about how the Lord is providing for His witnesses so that they can testify about Him. Um, which, well, if we get time, 
let's come back and circle around to that because I had I had some interesting thoughts on that that are a little bit more tangential, but that's pretty good for now. Okay. All right. Help me to re- help me remember to circle back. To I'll, put, that. I'll put an I, asterisk by it. How about that? Okay. That sounds good. That sounds good. We'll try to remember to, to circle back to that. For the, in the meantime, though, we'll see what happens now. Paul has come. I love how you said it. it's not just an adventure story. This is God's will to bring Paul to Rome, where he's going to testify to Jesus there in Rome. Uh, we heard that promise from the Lord Himself back in Acts chapter twenty-three, and that promise is coming to fulfillment. He's almost to Rome. We find him on the island of Malta first. So we're beginning Acts 28 at verse 1 today. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, They said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. And I'll pause there. That's the time of Paul on Malta. It takes us through verse 10 of the text. So verse one gives us the setting. It's an island called Malta. Tell us a little bit about the setting, Pastor Johnson. Right. So um, if you don't have your map right in front of you, Malta is uh, is just south of um, what is it, Sicily, right? The uh, that that big island, um, you know, right on the toe of Italy, and so they're almost to Rome at this point. Um, you know, and I don't know, you know, I'm not a mariner. I don't know all the ins and outs, but all I can tell you is that reading all this makes me realize like it was not an easy business getting from A to B in the ancient world. I can say that for sure. Um, you know, Malta was a, um, was an island that was under control over, uh, you know, by the Roman empire. Uh, but there was also a native population there. They, uh, they probably did not speak, uh, Latin. They probably spoke, um, I think some, some old version of Phoenician or something like that. Um, and so when they bump into him, you notice there's a clear distinction between the natives and then of course, um, uh, and, and then this, this man, uh, Publius, um, you know, who is, who is indeed a Roman. And, uh, you'll notice that, that in many ways there's a witness made to both of those, uh, of those groups. And, um, I don't know if there's further significance to the island of Malta other than it is, uh, it is indeed, it is indeed close. I think what really struck me about just this this one verse is they, they were brought safely through and they figured out then later, you know, what the name of this island was because they don't have GPS. Um, so if you go back uh, to the previous chapter, you remember that, um, you know, Paul had, had essentially told or you might even say prophesied uh, that, um, you know, he had delivered the word from God that, well, it's only the ship that's going to be destroyed. There will be no loss of life. If you just, you know, you should have listened to me to begin with. He gets that jab in. And, uh, but no, but he really seems to be set up in many ways 
as a prophet, as God's spokesperson, which I think fits perfectly well with with the picture we see of Paul throughout the book of Acts. He's a witness. He's God's spokesperson. And I think this is one of many, you know, very simple affirmations of that. Um, You know, I think perhaps as, as we read it, especially as Christians, it kind of seems like a duh statement, but, um, we might really be asking ourselves all along, like, well, how do we really know this Paul guy is legit? Right. Uh, you know, is he really, um, you know, is he really God's spokesperson? Is he really who he, you know, who he testifies to be? Um, you know, so in some ways it seems like Acts is always written with, you might say the skeptic in mind, or at least the unbeliever in mind. Um, that uh, how do we know that he's, you know, he's a legitimate prophet, he's a legitimate spokesperson. Once again, it happens exactly the way that, um, it happens the way, the way exactly that uh, he had prophesied from the Lord. He's a legitimate spokesperson for God. Yeah, I, I think you're definitely good in, in seeing that, how it testifies to, to Paul being a true apostle. It also testifies to the Lord's faithfulness in the midst of all this. And, and again, just that short note, we were brought safely through, is a reminder that everything that happened in the last chapter wasn't just an adventure story, right. but this was the Lord working out the fulfillment of his promise. Right. Um, I think there's an... Um, I got to thinking about that this morning, and uh, you know, I think there's a nice contrast here with stories, for example, like um, you know Homer's The Odyssey, um, where, you know, it also, you know, largely takes place or in and around the Mediterranean Sea. And, and there's a lot of parallels that you could, uh, you know, draw with it. It is kind of an exciting time. There's shipwrecks and, uh, you know, sea voyages and all sorts of other things. Um, but one thing that is remarkably um, distinct between these two is that from start to finish, um, God has has assured Paul. There's no question that this is this is the divine will. This is his plan. Everything's going exactly the way he planned it. Whereas, you know, Odysseus, like he doesn't know if he's going to make it back home. You know, and he's very much in many ways captive to or even fighting against the uh, the whims of the gods. I can't remember which one it is, but I know he he fights. You know, in the middle of one of these storms, you know. Um, uh, Homer says that he's fighting against the will of the uh, of uh, you know of the gods himself, and so you never quite know. Well, is he going to get home or is he not? And that makes for really great storytelling, but it doesn't make for very good Bible if you want to say it that way. <laughs> and so um, you know, Paul is he is not like that. He's on a mission from God, and nothing's going to you know nothing's going to stop him. And in some ways, we kind of see a little bit of that. Uh, you know, same contrast being reflected here in the next couple of verses. Yeah, that's right. Nothing's going to stop him, not even a, a poisonous viper, right. as we will see here. Which is So this is one of those those texts in, in the book of Acts that maybe makes us scratch our heads, although not too much, I suppose. It, we, we've seen miraculous things happen around Peter and Paul before, and so to see it happen again, we shouldn't be surprised. I suppose maybe before we get too far, just to notice how the people are— these 276 people who all survived the shipwreck, that's a, a large group of people, are now received with a, a pretty warm welcome by the natives, which I, I don't want to run over that too quickly. They they receive these people with kindness. Is that just the culture of the day? Is there something more there, perhaps? Yeah, I, you know, I kind of wanted the same thing, but I didn't come to any solid conclusions. You know, I mean, is this... Um, it made me think about... Um, you know, Matthew 10, 
you know, 40 through 42, where it talks about, you know, whoever, whoever welcomes someone because he is a disciple, right? When it, you know, even gives him a drink of cold water in my name, um, you know, then they've also received me. And so there's always a sense of with disciples, um, there's a sense of transference. If you receive the disciple, you receive the master as well. Um, but I think we want, we ought to be a little bit careful about that because it's not, in fact, it's actually abundantly clear that the natives, at least, don't come to the right theological conclusion. They don't, you know, come to be like, you know, um, you know, confessors of the apostles' creed at this point in time. I mean, they they uh, they have this this wrong conclusion about Paul actually being a god. Publius is a little bit better, but um, but it does make you wonder, though, is this hospitality shown to him sort of you might say divinely prompted and. I think it's a fun thing to think about, but I'm not really sure I can, I'm not sure I can prove that one either way. Well, I, you know, I, I think, is it divinely prompted? I think we could say yes to that in, in the sense that God, you know, provides for his people and particularly sure. for his messengers. Yeah. There is that promise. Yeah. Maybe I should have said it is indeed divinely provisioned. You know, it could kind of file all this under, give us a stay our daily bread. But I guess what I, what I mean is, but we shouldn't necessarily take it as a sign as that these, these are all now Orthodox believers. That's right. Sure. Sure. And and that makes sense. It, it, there's, there are several moments within this short narrative where I, I wish Luke would have recorded a little bit more, right. you know, particularly after they, the, the natives come to the conclusion that Paul was a God We've seen this happen to Paul before, and we know his response back in, oh, this was in Acts 14, I think, and, and I believe it was Lystra was the, the name of the place. I, right. I'll have to look that up. But, but it, I mean, it's striking that he, he doesn't say anything here, but I think you, you have to know that he did. You know, like, right. even though Luke doesn't record it, right. if Paul finds this out, surely he, he was quick to say, no, 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 we're not gods here, and, and he preached to them. Yeah, yeah, there, it's it really makes you wonder what didn't, you know, end up getting recorded, but you're right. That would be perfectly consistent with all the other things that, uh, you know, Paul says, you know, think about like, for instance, in first Corinthians where he, you know, where he really downplays himself and says, you know, you know, listen, I'm, I'm not anything. And Apollos isn't anything, you know, it's God who is the one who, who's done the whole thing, right? He's the one who gives the growth. And likewise, you know, they tear their clothes and like, you know, uh, men of, yeah, what is it? I think it was Lystra. I, I can't remember. I'm sure someone will correct us. It was. Us. I looked it oh, up. Did you? It's an wow, that was, that was, was really Lystra. fast. Good job. Uh, yeah, where they tear their clothes and say, no, no, we're, we're men just like you. Um, and, you know, I think that, well, we'll, we'll um, just to jump ahead, if you don't mind, since we're not really doing a very linear job here, um, that, uh, that after, you'll notice, um, when Paul, uh, you know, uh, visits uh, Publius's father and, and heals him, um, I noted that it, it comments very briefly, but it mentions that he also prayed as well. And that seems very consistent with the distinction between prophetic or apostolic miracles and Jesus's miracles. You know, so like, I think one of the great classic examples here is between, um, you know, the uh, Elijah and the uh, the widow at Zarephath. You remember that, you know, goes to her. It's with the flour and the oil and all that. Later on, her son dies. And, uh, you know, Elijah, you know, stretches herself or himself out over uh, her son three times, but also prays. And so it's not just, it's it, it becomes abundantly clear. This is, um, this is not his, like, um, this is not his personal power that brings his child back from the dead. In contrast, though, you know, where you already have, 
such a stark um, a parallelism with the widow of Nain, Jesus doesn't pray. Jesus just raises that widow's son from the dead, period, right? And I think here, you've, I think you've got a, a very similar contrast here. Paul doesn't do it out of his own power. He actually prays to the, uh, uh, to the Lord for this and, uh, and he's healed. And so I think there's always that, that ongoing um, distinction. I can't remember why I brought that up though, so. That's okay. We were just kind of talking, I think, about how, how Paul is, is in the center oh, of this narrative. Right. And, and yet, at the same time, you also know what he's there doing, right. which is, this is how you started the conversation. He's there to give testimony to Christ. And so even though he's in the center, yeah. you know, he's the quote, main character, yeah. throughout it all, you see how everything he's doing is pointing to Christ. Exactly. He's not here to magnify himself. He's not the big deal. Jesus is. Yeah. 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 Well, it, but although, it, you know, it is, it is interesting how how the Lord does single Paul out in this narrative. And and thinking from the perspective of both the natives and the Romans here, you know, there's a whole ship full of men, 276 of them, who have who've now come to the island of Malta, which is not a huge island. I don't know what the population would have been, but geographically, Malta's pretty small. And so to have you know, almost 300 men there suddenly to take care of, right. who are you, who are you going to look to, to take charge? Well, you know, you get, you've got the centurion who's there, Julius, he makes sense as becoming sort of the, the leader. And yet, you know, Julius takes a back seat in the narrative, which, you know, makes sense. But even in the events that happen, Paul is singled out as you guys, you natives, you Romans, you need to pay attention to what this man has to say. And of course, but the irony of it is that the Lord singles Paul out by having him getting bit by this snake, right, which right. takes us to that interesting, unusual event. So let's talk about this, this snake bite that Paul gets. Yeah. Um, well, th- there's probably a couple different angles we could approach us with. I think it was really interesting to hear, you know, you, we, we get reported a little bit of the, the thinking and the narrative of the, uh, of the natives, you know, Hey, well, the, you know, no, this guy's a murderer, you know, uh, justice has not allowed him to live. Um, and this is probably, at least according to the commentaries I found, this is probably a reference to, you know, uh, you know, more like a, the God of justice, the, you know, justice as a divine, you know, as a divine person. And so like, well, he might've escaped, uh, you know, for a little bit, but he ends up almost being a little bit of a Jonah character, uh, where, well, you can't run forever, right? Except it turns out that, you know, they, of course, change their mind because, um, you know, because he shakes it off and, and nothing nothing happens. It, it's, it's almost comical because you can imagine them like like falling around like, you know, 15 feet behind, just waiting for him to drop dead, but nothing actually happens. And so they're all disappointed. They got to, they got to uh, you know, change their narrative. Um, but you, what what really struck me about this, though, is it sounds so kind of like Bushmen of you know some you know some uh, you know something in the, the the Pacific Islanders or something like that, but it's not really um, because what they're really um, working with here, I think, is a very common concept which we usually call things like karma. Um, you know what goes around comes around, and this is a this is still I think an incredibly you might say a, a popular philosophy or worldview even today, you know, even if we don't call it karma, even if we don't, you know, even if we don't ascribe it to ancient, the ancient Greek God of justice, I think most people fundamentally believe that, you know, people should get what's coming to them. And that if they don't, then like the world sort of let you down. 
I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people I've, I've, I've run across, you know, in my lifetime that, that really feel that way. And so, I mean, what seems to be this very, you know, antiquated, um, you know, sense of, of justice really, I don't think is actually the antiquated at all. Um, and, and perhaps if we could actually dovetail this into the theology of, of cross and theology of glory, um, I think this is a really great opportunity to kind of preach this, that all of Paul's experiences, right? You know, they're clearly not all pleasant, even though we know that they're actually, you know, that he's on a, a mission from God. Um, you know, it's not pleasant being shipwrecked, you know, or almost be, you know, or being destroyed or being starved or being bit by a snake for that matter. But all of these things are, you know, are God's purposes, ultimately not for Paul's good necessarily. Like, well, I should say it is for Paul's good, but in other words, Paul isn't, you know, God's, um, Paul's like happiness and contentment is not the main thing here. In fact, actually this gets back to the asterisk I was going to get to earlier. Um, I sometimes worry that in Christianity, um, that we, that we think that God's job is, you know, that, that God's greatest calling in life is somehow to make me comfortable and successful and, um, you know, and, uh, you know, heal all my diseases and whatnot. And it's not to say that the Lord doesn't uh, do that. And he indeed does. Uh, I don't want to oversell this. He certainly promises daily bread. But you can sort of hear in, in that um, a lot of the underpinnings of, you know, the theology of glory, a lot of the, the so-called name it, claim it theology, you know, God's going to give me, if you pray hard enough, you believe hard enough, God's going to give you health and wealth and, you know, and, and prosperity and all this other stuff. But what really strikes me is I, I kind of reread all through the book of Acts is that that's just not the primary concern. The primary concern is that the world would hear about Jesus, <laughs> is that, that um, the, the work and ministry of Christ would be testified to. And so that like Paul's, you know, quote unquote success or comfort all takes a backseat. Not that God is like somehow completely callous to all this, but that the best thing that can be served is not whether or not Paul, you know, lives or dies, but that he has the opportunity, in fact, the privilege of testifying, you know, to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and perhaps think about how differently we might end up living our lives if we if we don't think that that the primary goal of our lives is to you know is necessarily to um, you know you know pick your favorite things is to um, uh, you know to be financially self sustainable or to be cancer free or you know all the things that we tend to pray about um, that those are fine. But that they're really not the the ultimate end goal of Christianity is that in the end, um, it would be Christ and him crucified, right? And this is kind of the way that Paul talks in in Colossians, right? That um uh that uh that all that I consider all things as lost. That's not Colossians, never mind that. I can't remember where it's from, but I consider all things lost for the sake of Christ, right? Um, yeah, that's Philippians. That's Philippians. Philippians. Thanks. I see. I was thinking. I was thinking Colossians. I was thinking Colossians three, where your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Right. That's right. So similar thoughts. Anyway. Right. Right. Galatians two as well, where where I've I I no longer live, but as Christ who lives in me. Right. Th those things apply too. What what you were talking there about the the goal of this life or the primary concern here, 
not being Paul's comfort or earthly success, but rather giving witness to the name of Christ, reminded me of all, I mean, all the way back toward the end of Paul's third missionary journey, before he got to Jerusalem, which is where the whole thing got started, that now he's in almost to Rome at this point. Yeah. When, when he was traveling back toward Jerusalem, all along that way, people were telling him, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to suffer there. You're going to suffer. In fact, and it wasn't just people telling him, but this was prophets speaking to him, right. given the word of God, saying, if you go there, you're going to be bound. And and Paul, Paul and they, they're trying to tell him, Paul, don't go because you're going to suffer. And Paul has this wonderful, wonderful quote in, in Acts 21, starting in verse 13. He, he says, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? And I, this is the attitude I think you're describing. Right. Paul says, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, his his attitude there, I think, is precisely what you're talking about, that Paul recognizes you know, he doesn't count his life worthy of anything except to give testimony to the name of the Lord Jesus. And and this is where I, I think then, you know, the, the promise that Paul has because becomes so important that Paul knows whatever he does go through, this suffering that he's, he's enduring right now, being shipwrecked and now bitten by a snake, even through it all, the Lord is going to keep his promise that Paul will testify in Rome. And I, you know, I mean, that those two things go going together, I think, are what sustain Paul. That on the one hand, he knows his his goal in life is to testify to Christ. He's got the promise of God that he will testify in Rome. Those two things really push Paul onward to to persevere, even even in the midst of all this suffering. Right. And that really reminded me of even in the previous chapter with his speech to the Ephesian elders before he leaves. You know, he says, you know, I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Like, could you imagine that as a sermon on like ordination day? <laughs> like, well, you know, but but the craziest thing about this, and I think this is one of the, the great um, mysteries of the faith, is that we would actually see this and and say, well, yeah, that's great. <laughs> I mean, that we're, that we're really okay with that because, because if our life is truly hidden with Christ in God, that, okay, if I'm bitten by snakes or if I'm not bitten by snakes, if I end up, you know, dirt poor, if I end up wealthy, if I end up imprisoned or if I, if I end up free from my life, you know, what is it to me in the end? Because in the end that, uh, that we would be gifted with the privilege to be witnesses to Jesus Christ and I mean, in many ways, I think this is always one of the most incomprehensible things about Christianity that will always baffle the unbelieving world, you know, because it looks like we're just willing to throw our lives away. And that's exactly pretty much what Paul says. Not that we're really throwing them away, but that they're already secure. So what do we have to lose? That's right. That's right. We we trust in the God who raises exactly, death. and and that's right. Paul's confidence. And and let's let's pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. We're talking Acts 28 with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. We'll be right back. Please stick around.
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, July 5th. We're studying Acts chapter 28, verses 1 to 16 with Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. He serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, prior to the break, we were looking at the natural theology of these Maltese? I don't know if that's right. Maltese Islanders, the natives here in Malta. And they, they say that justice has not allowed him to live. You pointed out that many commentators consider justice to be the name of a, a Greek god or the, an unnamed Greek god of justice. In the ESV, even, justice is capitalized. And, and it strikes me, with you were talking earlier about this idea of karma that's kind of out there, that people think there should be this, this justice. The way that these islanders are considering it and the way that our world often thinks about it is a very impersonal thing. In fact, I think the way you phrase it is that you know, if we don't see this justice, then we think the world has let us down, right? that this impersonal force has let us down. That really, I think, stands in great contrast to the hope of the scriptures, which and, and in my mind particularly, I think through the book of Psalms, we've been studying the Psalms in adult Bible class here in, at Grace recently, and, and how often the Psalms appeal to God as the righteous or the just judge, there's a really big difference between this impersonal justice that the islanders have in mind and what the hope of the scriptures is, is that God is a just and righteous judge. That's a, a real hope. Right. Um, you know, and I, I really wonder what kind of, you know, what kind of a background that these, these islanders have, but it's interesting that during, particularly during this time, um, there is a uh, an author who has chronicled the – there's a major shift that's happening in the world probably just a little prior to the time of Paul. And it's really um, what one author called the, the transition from the, the age of the gods to the age of forms. And let me explain that a little bit because I think it's really worthwhile in helping understand this. Um, that to some extent, like especially back in the, the Old Testament, um, you know, people understood – there were no impersonal gods. Every god was personal. Now, the real, so the real question was: Were you worshiping, you know, the right god or not? Um, and of course, you know what what the Old Testament reveals to us is that you know there were no other gods. There's only the Lord God Himself, Yahweh. Um, but um, one of the big developments, primarily in um, you know in the Greek speaking world, was really this move away from you know um, gods as uh, you know as personal versus God as an abstraction, or even might, you might call a principle. And even though we, you know, we all learn, you know, all the personal Greek gods, you know, Zeus and, and, uh, you know, and, uh, and Hermes and, uh, you know, and all, and all the other ones that I can't remember right now, <laughs> but, um, 
But truth be told, those were largely, you know, the idea that God was a person was mocked by many of the of the greater philosophers, Socrates and Plato and, and, and Aristotle and all these other guys. Um, they were because by that time, many of the of, of the upper echelons of the intelligentsia were they really believed in more of, you know, uh, of an abstract force of, uh, you know, of God. And so, in fact, they would even call him the word, which interestingly, you know, uh, it's really interesting what John does that with in John 1, but that's a conversation for another day. And so this move, this transition from the age of the gods where gods were personal and they were responsible for justice. In other words, justice was located in a person. It became an abstraction. And so it became a principle of justice that you were essentially obeying. And one of the things I think that we really haven't reckoned with is the fact that we try to embrace both of these things. And one of the most common objections I've heard, I don't know about you, but is that uh, God, uh, oftentimes people say, well, I, I can't believe that God would do that. Or how is that just that God would be doing that? I would argue that's a completely incomprehensible question to the ancients, like the, the ancient ancients. Um, because whatever God does is just by definition, whereas, but once we move to the forms, you can then move to evaluating what the gods do by a higher sense of justice. And here's the very simple observation. Once you can start to evaluate your God, can he really be called your God anymore? You know, or is it the abstract principles with which, you know, to which you hold him, you know, or her, I suppose, for that matter, just kind of speaking generically, you know, for God's small g. And I think we've slipped into that in Christianity for actually quite some time where we end up, you know, trying to like play judge over the Lord and say, well, this is fair and this is unfair. When really what we're actually doing is we're embracing the idea of, you know, uh, the ancient Greek idea that that even the gods are subject to higher principles like justice and, you know, a, and, um, you know, and mercy and all these other things that are more abstractions. And that's actually not the way that God defines himself in, in the Bible. You know, um, like you said, he shows justice simply by what he does. And there's no principle by which we can we can argue with him about that well and i think the way that the the psalms teach us to pray is that when we when we look upon this world and we see things that are not just we see injustice we cry out to god as the one who is just right. even if we don't you know understand how he accomplishes it or, or in what way he'll accomplish it Although I suppose all of this should point us finally to to cry Christ on the cross, as that's where the justice of God is is fully accomplished. Right. But I mean, that's that's where the Psalms. Again, that's just where my mind is because that's what we're studying in adult Bible class right now. But the Psalms particularly give us that hope in in crying out to God as the just Judge, knowing that He will give that justice and He will do so in the in the absolutely perfect way, and one in which I, I simply am bound to praise him for that justice. Right, right. And that ultimately, in the end, it is not, you know, um, uh, it's not philosophical answers that we're given, but what we're given is actually we are given words of comfort from the, you know, from God himself rather than explanations, which in many ways, um, you know, if you think about it, 
uh, I've used this example plenty of times in sermons before. Um, you might, you know, your grandma's got cancer and, and, you, and you ask, why, oh Lord, why? Like if he could actually reveal to you like a long chain of events that actually explained all the reasoning for it, that doesn't bring her back from the dead, right? <laughs> um, you know, and so instead, you know, um, I think we really underappreciate the way that our prayers are answered, not the answers that we are given in the sense of an explanation, but that the response that we have from the Lord is simply, is essentially like, I love you and I'm merciful. <laughs> and, uh, and in the end, that is far superior to any kind of philosophical explanation. Yeah, I'm, that that reminds me of the book of Habakkuk, right. in, in which you know the prophet questions, you know, Lord, he he questions these very things that we're talking about, and he says, Lord, why do you let the evil prosper? And he says, Okay, I'll send the Babylonians. <laughs> Habakkuk right. says, well, that's worse, <laughs> and, and of course, that's where Habakkuk gets the answer from the Lord, which which Paul quotes in the book of Romans that the righteous live by faith, right. and, and that's where you know the Lord, in response to our question why, it's not wrong to to question why. Mm-hmm. But, but we should recognize that sometimes the Lord doesn't answer that. Rather, he, as you said, he, he simply makes his promise and, and says, I love you. Trust me. Right. Right. Yeah. And uh, Habakkuk is a really great example. Um, I'm trying to think in many ways, it's very parallel with Ecclesiastes, mm-hmm. um, you know, because in many ways we're not really given or even better Job, right? I mean, after all of the, theodic- yeah. the, uh, the theodicies that all of his friends propose, basically God says to Job, well, I'm God and you're not. So um, you, you better sit down and I'm going to do what I'm going to do. So just trust me. I mean, that's, that's, right. that's really his answer in the end. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's right, and and all of this again, it comes from from what the the islanders there on Malta are saying about justice and how maybe that sounds quaint to us. Oh, we would never do that, and and yet this this way of thinking, this you know, as you put it, karma is still very much alive. And so what what we're seeing here is that the the scriptures, God's word, actually gives us real hope that instead of this false theology that that really adheres to all of us according to our sinful nature. The Bible gives us a real hope in, in the God who is just. And then, you know, as Paul says in Romans 3, the God who is just, who justifies us, the ungodly. That's where all these promises finally find their fulfillment, is where God accomplishes his justice in justifying sinners through Christ's death and resurrection. Right. Yeah. You, you said it better than I than I could have. So let's let's talk a little bit, uh, Pastor Johnson, about about the the signs that are done here. So we've got Paul uh, essentially handling snakes, and then we've we've got him praying and, and healing people. And I don't know, do you handle snakes in your church regularly? Um, I, I I did once, but not with my hands, and it wasn't in the church. It was in my garage. It got caught in the uh, in the chain of the garage door opener. It was terrifying. So <laughs> he was really mad. But uh, no, no, I do. Uh, the only snakes that we've ever handled are ones that need to be uh, taken care of by an exterminator. <sighs> That's right. So, what are, I mean, what are we to make of? And we we've seen this throughout the Book of Acts. Right but here, I suppose it's the the particular the snake that that comes out. And and I guess one of the things that I've often thought about when it comes to this passage is we do see Jesus' own words coming to fulfillment here. He he promised such things, such protection from from serpents, right. for example, in yeah. Luke chapter ten. I mean, so we should see that. And I think right, but in Mark terms of, sixteen, the longer the longer ending of. That's right. That's right. So, I mean, we see that the Lord fulfills his promises to his apostles in these things. But in terms of their ongoing nature within the church, I mean, I said that tongue in cheek. Right. I didn't figure you're handling snakes. <laughs> what, what are we to make of that in terms of the, the ongoing proclamation? And that That's really the rub, isn't it? Because, I mean, you know, it's not like, you know, 
we're not going to deny that Paul got a chance to, you know, he got bitten by snakes and he was not, uh, you know, and he was not uh, affected by it. Um, and for that matter, yeah, sure, he healed all those things. We are not going to deny any of those things. The real key question, and I think which becomes so problematic in the church today is, is that is this is this merely descriptive of the time or do we take this as a necessary sort of, you know, part of the life of the church even today? You know, in other words, is this a mandate? And, uh, and I think this probably fits more broadly with a lot of the others, you know, uh, signs that were given in the early church, you know, like speaking in tongues, although there's some debate about what exactly that meant, you know, and also, uh, you know, prophecies and healing and whatnot. And uh, I have not been, you know, uh, privy to a lot of those signs, but the, um, you know, the short of it is, is that um, we don't say that it can't happen, but the real question is, do we say that it has to? And I think we'd we'd be very hard pressed to find any passage in the uh, in the New Testament where Jesus says, you know, like for example, he says in the um, uh, you know in the Lord's Supper, do this in my remembrance. You know, there's no there's no um, Christological mandate with it. Jesus doesn't say this is going to be something that you always get to do. Right? He says it with baptism. He says it with absolution. He says it with the Lord's Supper. He doesn't say it with snake handling. <laughs> and, right. and so, and so on the one hand, you know, we do want to be careful that we don't just throw all this out as like pre-modern kind of gobbledygook. Um, and that we say, well, this could never happen in the church, but we should also be really careful. In fact, I was just talking with uh, some of my members who have family members who go to a church where um, they still uh, you know, they still take a lot of the Pentecostal signs like, uh, you know, speaking in tongues and prophesying and whatnot um, to be mandatory parts of the church and that that it's a sign that you are not a, you know, a full believer if you don't exemplify these things. And that's where it becomes problematic. Yeah, right. And when we, when we take something, and we've, we've looked at this in the Book of Acts before, when we take something that is descriptive of what happened at that time— and make it prescriptive for the church in every time and every place, that's where we can run into trouble. And so we certainly don't deny that these things happened in Acts 28, not by any means. This is the Lord at work. But And we don't deny that the Lord could do these things, but has he promised to do them? That's the question that we ask. And we, we keep our, we, we hang our hat on what the Lord has promised, not on things that he hasn't. Right. And if you don't mind, I mean, if we got time for another little bit of a quick diatribe from me, I think that gets into a, do we have time for that? We got about 12 minutes. So. Plenty of time, plenty of time. This will be relatively short. Although if any of my members are listening, they've heard all these things a million times. You know how this goes. But but I think it is important to remember that, um, you know, that in the church, um, the oftentimes you'll hear, well, we only follow the Bible. That's often the companion kind of slogan that goes along with, you know, things like required speaking in tongues and prophecies and whatnot. And, um, you know, my snarky answer to this is always, um, what G- what color does Jesus tell you to make your carpeting? And what I mean by that, though, my actually my daughter actually asked me what I meant by that the other day. And so it's apparently not as clear as I thought it was. Um, but that we do need to recognize that there are there are quite a few things that Jesus says, like, well, these are necessary parts of, 
you know, you know, within the church. We've already mentioned the means of grace. And obviously, like the Holy Spirit is a necessary part of the church and gathering together because that's actually what church means. Ecclesia means, you know, a gathering together. Um, you know, obviously, you know, the word of God and prayer and all these things that are are clearly delineated in the New Testament. But there's tons of stuff that we have in the church that that simply you know, is not going to be spelled out for us. Or maybe to put it a little bit differently, the New Testament is not a how to run a church manual. There are tons of things that we are in many ways given freedom to do. You know, like how do we organize ourselves? This is something even the reformers recognized. I think that we've struggled with, you know, in other words, what does your church structure look like, right? Do you have to have, um, you know, a Presbyterian polity? Is it, you know, is it Episcopalian polity? You know, is it going to be congregational? So on and so forth. Um, You know, well, the Lord doesn't actually say thou shalt have this, that, or the other thing. And so in many ways, we are left with a remarkable amount of freedom. And in some ways, I almost think we have a hard time with that in the church because there's a lot of things we're just left with using our good senses to say, you know, hey, what would a good color for church carpeting be? Or maybe more to the point, like, how do we handle our finances? What kind of building program should we have? You know, uh, you know, what kind of insurance should we buy? Should we have insurance at all? You know, all these questions are very legitimate ones. But you can't find them spelled out in the Bible. And I think we really need to come to always reckon with the distinction between things that are described, things that are prescribed, and things that simply are not at all mentioned at all. And it doesn't mean that they don't belong in the church. That's okay. So, well, carpet. Tile's better, though. <laughs> oh, of course, Kyle better. Yeah, yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> but again, you're right. You're right, Pastor Johnson. Well well said. Well taken. Well well said. So let's let's pick up the rest of the text here. Uh, we, we left off in verse 18 of Acts chapter 28. Sorry, verse 11, Acts chapter 28. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putioli. There we found brothers, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. That is the rest of our text for today. That takes us through Acts 28, verse 16. Pastor Johnson, so they, they stay there in Malta for three months. They wintered there on the island. It's a call back to some of the, the nautical things that we learned back in chapter 27 about when you sail and when you don't sail on the Mediterranean Sea. Right. So they, they hang out there in Malta because it's, it's too dangerous to sail any farther. But then they, they finish the journey. Uh, give us some of the, the highlights here. Plenty to, to talk about. Right. I mean, a lot of it is just geographical. They're basically heading, uh, you know, they go over to Sicily. That's that's where Syracuse is. And then they hop over to the main part of the island. Then they uh, then they take kind of a little, uh, you almost call it a day trip uh, to uh, Potili or however that's pronounced. And, uh, you know, eventually they come over to Rome. But I think the really the big stuff is the fact that, first of all, um, you know, some of the brothers actually come to meet him. Um, and I, I really... It really struck me how it says, Paul thanked God and took courage. Because I thought, you know, Paul's kind of a superhero, right? I mean, he seems like a guy that like nothing phases him. He's been through a shipwreck. He's been bit by snakes. I mean, you know, this is a guy who, who's not easily uh, shaken. But he was encouraged by them, which 
which in many ways kind of tells me like, I wonder if Paul had, he must've had some rough times. Um, you know, and it, it reminded me of the, of the great gift and the value simply of the encouragement of fellow believers. Um, and this is, you might say one of those kind of heartwarming applications you might say, but it's a very legitimate one. Paul reminds the, you know, the Corinthians that they're all one body in Christ, right? You know, you know, toes and eye, eyelashes and earlobes and all that stuff. And, um, and he, um, even Paul himself takes encouragement from that. And it's legitimate for us to be as well, because I think, especially I think in a nation that, you know, arguably is, is um, becoming perhaps more antagonistic to Christianity by the day, we would do really well to uh, to be encouraged by one another because you know when, when we're isolated, that is um, that that often becomes desperate times. Um, you know, now it's not that not that Christianity is just about the community, but we can be encouraged by the community, and that we we got to be remember that we're whether we like it or not, we're all influenced by majorities. We're all influenced by the crowds, right? There's that old um, advertising saying, right? 50 million people can't be wrong, um, which by the way, of course, is false because 50 million people, of course, can be wrong. But the point the point is, is that there there is indeed strength in numbers. And I think that's a point that that is not missed by our Lord or by Paul for that matter. Yeah, and I appreciate the way that Luke writes it here. That Paul thanked God and took courage. Yeah. It's easy. It's easy to to see Paul as almost a a lone ranger or the you know, the the hero who stands against everyone else. And and that's just not the picture that we're given of Paul. He is encouraged by what God is doing for him and by the brothers who come to visit him by the whole church. And that I mean, just just seeing Paul in that you know that he needs the the courage and the encouragement from these brothers coming to him, it's, that's helpful to me as a pastor, because it is. I think it's easy for pastors to, to get into that Lone Ranger sort of mentality. And, and man, what a, what, a, what, a, what a strengthening text and, and a, an encouragement to all of us, I think, in, in two respects. One is that you know, not to separate ourselves from the gathering of the saints so that we might receive that encouragement from the fellow saints. And then also not to underestimate the encouragement that our our presence within that gathering provides to others. You know, it's, it may be easy to, to miss that. Like, oh, you know, no, nobody's going to notice if I'm gone. Well, right. your pastor notices, I guarantee you that. Oh, yeah, amen and, to that. I, I bet other people do, too. <laughs> and, and just, and I'm sure you know this, too, Pastor Johnson, how much, how encouraging it is to see the saints gather together. That, that I mean, again, it's not a touchy-feely kind of thing, but you, you really can't underestimate just how important that is. Right. I mean, it's uh, almost every time. So if, if, if we're trying, hopefully we're not trying to keep too far away from the touchy feely part, but I mean, let's, you know, okay. So we, we're ascended with a German background, right? But nevertheless, it doesn't mean like we're all callous and feelingless. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many times as a pastor, um, you know, I, I, uh, I almost tear up at the, at the sacrament because, I mean, all the best things that I can rejoice in are the things that Jesus is giving through my hands, right? It's because, you know, like I'm a hopeless schmo, right? But the Lord is doing some pretty amazing stuff on a Sunday morning. And for me to go through and know, you know, like to be able to go down, um, you know, the communion rail, thinking about each individual person and the struggles that they're having with, you know, with their family or with health or with loneliness or, you know, sins that they're really struggling with and to be able to put into their mouth 
the very you know body and blood of Christ himself and know that that is going to to strengthen them in ways that I could never do for them. I mean, um, that is just about the most encouraging thing. And I just think to myself, you came, you came, and now I get to bless you with this. I mean, um, how much greater of a joy can you imagine, uh, you might say, as a spiritual parent to be able to say, um, I am strengthening you with a strength that is beyond anything I could provide you with. It is Christ himself that being that you are being endowed with. Yeah, and, and to see that that, that like, has made a difference for them, that, right. that the Lord has been at work in them in this way, and they, they believe it and they're encouraged by it, that, that in turn encourages the whole church, pastors included. I, one of, I, I tell my youth confirmands and adult confirmands as well that one of the, one of the most amazing moments for, for me as a pastor is when I get to give communion to someone for the first time. But, but then I say, but a close second is when I get to give communion to them the very next Sunday, mm-hmm. because that means they came back. And, and what, a, what a joy that is to see not only how, how the Word of God you know, makes a difference and, and, and encourages and strengthens the saints for that first time, but how it continues to do that throughout their lives. I, again, this, I think, is what we're seeing with Paul in that he thanks God and he takes courage. You know, he hasn't made this journey for nothing. Right. It's not been in vain, but he he is actually strengthening the saints that he meets along the way and will give witness to to the name of the Lord Jesus there in Rome, which is where he's headed. It's it's a very it's a wonderful picture and it, it's okay to to feel good about it, I think. <laughs> good. I'm glad we've given everybody permission about that. <laughs> That's right. So we've got about a minute and a half left, Pastor Johnson. Help us to wrap things up. Give us the the goods from this part of Acts twenty eight. Yeah, I mean, if, if I can, if I can go back to what I originally said in the very beginning. I mean, this is Paul as prophet, um, and what we see most clearly in this, not just Paul's faithfulness, but more importantly, the Lord's faithfulness. That everything that uh, that his mission from God is to be a witness and the Lord is making that happen in some of the craziest ways even with you know being bitten by snakes that you know it will be the Lord will be undeterred and that uh that in that same way um you know the Lord uh we should take great courage in the fact that the very same Lord calls us to be witnesses no matter what would happen in our lives whether it is a, uh, a life of peace and tranquility or whether it is one that is that is uh mired in conflict and difficulty because of Christ um you know that that our lives are are, are secure and we can take the same comfort even that Paul did when he was finally brought to uh to Rome Pastor Jeremiah Johnson is pastor at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota, helping us today with Acts chapter 28, verses 1 to 16. Pastor Johnson, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Acts 28, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. Use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.